You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Everyone is um, going to read a few selections from poetry of the ages um, that is more on the, um, I don't want to say ancient, but the, the older side of things before we move on to the modern. And we'll probably pause uh, at the 30 minute mark just to see if anybody has any questions on what's been read. Um, and then from there, um, we're going to move on and have uh, the gentleman read some pieces that are more modern. And we'll do a Q&A after that. Um, so why don't we start um, with the introductions, if you would like to, to go first. Is this work? Oh, today's microphones are very sensitive and sophisticated, and we don't have to shout. Uh, oh, my name is Donald Sidney Fryer. Um, and I write imaginative poetry. Uh, I'm not, never c comfortable with the term fantastic. One can perceive the everyday as utterly fantastic, so where exactly do you draw the demarcating line? Thank you. My name's David Lundy, and I am a poet and a translator, and some of the poetry I write is speculative poetry. Um, and my background is I, I taught uh, English and creative writing at the State University of New York for 34 years, and I'm now retired and just writing. Hi, I'm uh, Michael Shea, and a writer, also a teacher, uh, and all the genres basically, not so much sci-fi. Love them all, though. Welcome. Um, and of course, I mentioned before, I'm Rain Graves, and I um, will be moderating the panel today. I wrote a book called uh, Bar Fodder, Poetry Written in Dark Bars and Questionable Cafes. And uh, if you can tell anything by the cover, it does have quite a few elements of fantasy in it. Um, I'd like to start today off uh, with a little um, excerpt from uh, a wonderful, wonderful poet who has been a source of amazing inspiration for me over the years uh, by the name of Lord Alfred Tennyson. Um, and this is from his Idols of the King. And if you are familiar with Tennyson, you may al already know that he did quite a bit on uh, Merlin and Merlin and the Gleam and Sir Lancelot and all of that. And he's probably most famous for a poem called The Lady of Shalott. And what people are not as familiar with is um, a work that he wrote called Lancelot and Elaine. And the Lady Elaine is actually um, the Lady of Shalott. And it's a much more in-depth uh, look at Elaine and her psyche um, and uh, what drove the Lady of Shalott to float down the river um, and letting her blood freeze uh, to warn of great descent about to happen in the uh, castle of Camelot. So this is just a, a, a little brief opening um, so you can kind of get a feel for how wonderfully fantastical um, some of this old stuff was. 
Elaine the fair, Elaine the lovable, Elaine the lily maid of Astolat. High in her chamber up a tower to the east, guarded the sacred shield of Lancelot, which first she placed where morning's earliest ray might strike it and awake her with the gleam. Then fearing rust or soyer, fashioned for it a case of silk and braided thereupon all the devices blazoned on the shield in their own tinct and added of her wit a border fantasy of branch and flower and yellow-throated nestling in the nest. Of course, talking about how she coveted Lancelot's shield when he was sick and uh, near death, which she nurse, nursed back to health um, in the poem Lady of Shalott. So uh, let's move on to our next. I'd like to invoke something slightly older, even if it's also by another 19th century poet. Uh, there are two poets named Jose Maria de Aredia. One is a Cuban poet who had to go into exile uh, for, for reasons of politics. And the other one um, to whom he was related, Jose Maria de Aredia, was born of a Cuban father, grew up on a sugar plantation, uh, but went to school in France. His mother was Norman French. He's the most famous, among other things, he's a member of the second generation of French Romantic poets, um, the Panassians, and second only possibly to Le Comte de Lille himself, who was the sort of leader of the school, to use these conventional terms. Uh, in late in his life, he had one collection of sonnets published, almost 120 of them, plus some longer poems, to fill out the volume. Each sonnet is perfect. Um, and it, and it, it evokes different periods of history. And this is the opening one, uh, L'Oubli, Oblivion. Of course, I'm giving it in a translation, which although it doesn't rhyme, is very close to the original. The temple stands in ruins atop the promontory here, death has all mixed up. I, I'd better read it. My memory is none of the best these days. Yeah. We'll begin again. The temple stands in ruins atop the promontory. Here, death has all mixed up in this fawn-colored ground the marble goddesses and heroes cast in bronze, whose high renown the solitary grass enshrouds. Alone sometimes a drover leading his oxen to water with his conch from which yearns an ages-old complaint filling the tranquil skies and the marine horizon lifts his dark form against that infinite clear blue. The earth, maternal and kind to the ancient gods, every spring still makes green, how eloquent in vain, one more acanthus for the broken capital. But man, unmindful of his forebears, dream itself, without a tremor, hears from the depth of calm nights. The sea, 
who grieves for her lost sirens. By herself. Okay, uh, I think I, I wanted. To, I think this is the professor coming out in me. But our the topic, the description of our panel was, um, you know, fantastic poetry from the from antiquity until the present, and antiquity goes back much farther than Tennyson. Uh, Tennyson it does. It does. Tennyson. <laughs> tennis, well, I, Tennyson is also the the earliest example I have that I'm going to read, but. I did want to point out that the poetry is the oldest kind of literature in the world, and the, uh, the first literary work we know of is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which of course was poetry. And it's a wonderful thing, if you haven't read it, you must. It has the original story of the flood and the animals being saved by Utnapishtim, not Noah. The Bible's version is, is a, a distorted version of the version that was in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, but he, Gilgamesh makes a journey there uh, to try and get immortal life because he thinks that you know, this fellow has been given immortal life because of what he did. And he thinks he can get the secret of it from him. And it turns out that it just isn't possible to do that. You know, and this is one of the lessons that it teaches that humans are not going to be immortal ever. You know, so. But after that, of course, you have all the great works like Homer's Odyssey and the, the explorations of heaven and hell by Milton and Virgil and Dante and all of that sort of thing. Um, so there's plenty of background there before we get up to the 18th and 19th century and so on. Anyway, I am going to read from Tennyson. This is from Locksley Hall, um, which is a very long poem, and this is a short excerpt from it. I will spare you the rest. He's quite a wordy fellow. <laughs> For I dipped into the future, far as human eye could see, saw the vision of the world and all the wonder that would be, saw the heavens fill with commerce, Argosies of magic sails, pilots of the purple twilight dropping down with costly bales. Heard the heavens fill with shouting, and there rained a ghastly dew from the nation's airy navies grappling in the central blue. Far along the worldwide whisper of the south wind rushing warm with the standards of the peoples plunging through the thunderstorm till the war drum throbbed no longer and the battle flags were furled in the parliament of man, the federation of the world. Now that's a science fiction poem. I mean, that's ex that part of it. You know, it sounds like a description of Second World War warfare, you know, with planes fighting it out and planes carrying goods from one place to another. What he had in mind, however, what inspired him, were the balloon ascensions of the Montgolfiers and Jacques Charles in 1763. This poem was written in 1837, and it, was, it, it had really caught the fancy of everyone in Europe. You know, this was a, a, a miraculous thing. Everybody was into ballooning. So I'll pass it on at that, that point to Michael. 
Uh, I just wanted to add to what David so wonderfully said. In the, the end of, of Gilgamesh, I mean, just to show that, you know, sort of adventure fantasy and the humor involved in fantasy and sword and sorcery was alive uh, in ancient Sumer, uh, Utnapishtim does direct him to the flower of immortality, which uh, he and Enkidu go and acquire. But before they can munch the blossom, a serpent darts in and steals it, swallows it, and slithers away so that he actually had the chalice to his lips. Of course, that's the reason why serpents shed their skin and are eternally renewed. Uh, I wanted to, just to share, I actually, I, I wasn't aware that I should have brought, I thought it was all our poetry. So I've, I just jotted down some of the lines <laughs> I love best from the great Poe. Not that antique, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> antique enough, sir. But um, it's the opening and the closing of one of my favorite poems of Poe. First and last stanza. Lo, tis a gala night within the lonesome latter years. An angel throng, bewinged, bedight in veils and drowned in tears, sit in a theater to see a play of hopes and fears, while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. And then there follows seven marvelous stanzas in the concluding one. Out, out of the lights, out all, and over each quivering form, the curtain, a funeral pall, comes down with the rush of a storm, and the angels, all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy man and its hero the conqueror worm. Thank you, Michael. Um, it, it's interesting also that, um, as David noted, um, poetry is one of the oldest forms of expression in both song and in language. And um, by no means uh, are the most popular ones out of memory the oldest or the um, best examples, but I wanted to interject, um, in addition, some of your most favorite fantastical writers were poets first, um, or poets in secret, such as Clark Ashton Smith, who uh, wrote uh, quite a volume of poetry, and if you can get your hands on it, um, I recommend you do, it's, it's quite rare, uh, but it does exist, and I believe there were only about 500 copies ever made, um, but it's out there. <laughs> in fact, the guys at Odyssey Books in San Rafael nearby used to have a copy, uh, but they're closed, so sorry. Um, would any of you like to speak more I on would like to say something that, as we know, libraries have existed for some time in this country, and if you're interested in any author, especially a California author, all you need to go is to some nearby university library and you should find copies of the early poetry collections of Smith. Smith, in his early poetic career, did not exist in secret, but he did not get the attention of the mainstream as many other people uh, did. Um, so if you are really interested, you can find these volumes. They're not that hard to find. In terms of purchasing them, Hippocampus Press has recently published thanks to the hard work of S.T. Joshi, 
and uh, David E. Schultz, the complete poetry of Clark Ashton Smith, that is all his poetry in verse, if that's not redundant. And also still available from Hippocampus Press are two um, excellent anthologies of George Sterling, Smith's mentor, and also of Smith. Uh, one is called The Thirst of Satan, and the that's the Sterling volume, and the other one is called um, The Last Oblivion. And a recent, and in a recent volume just came out in time for this convention, uh, the one-woman poet, Nora Mae French, uh, whose work is very small. The actual corpus of her work is very small. I did want to mention, because I think it's nice to be reminded of Gilgamesh, and certainly it is very refreshing to hear people reading from Tennyson and speaking of him with respect. There was a long period in the early to middle 1900s when it was fashionable among many British intellectuals to deride Tennyson because he seemed more a creature of emotion than of the intellect. He was quite a bright man. It was the province of poets years ago before they began writing, or as part of their own education, to read a great deal. So in essence, each poet absorbed the tradition before him. Uh, not an inconsiderable task. And although Gilgamesh is an important work, the two epics by Homer, and also the Aeneid of Virgil, but the two epics by Homer, he comes before Hes just before Hesiod, is the foundation of the literary tradition in the Western world. I say that because I have a friend who is a retired professor emeritus, uh, California State University at Sacramento, who for years has been sponsoring all-night readings of Homer in various venues, Manhattan, not exactly a cheap place to put those on. So one time she got a $25,000 grant from the Greek consulate there. She's also sponsored, of course, with the cooperation of many people, including Greek-speaking people. <laughs> uh, there was a reading about a year ago at the New Library in Alexandria in Egypt. And this past summer, on the island of Chios, which is associated with Homer, these are local traditions, not something imposed by scholars coming along. And uh, at this famous rock of the teacher, which is one of the places where he is supposed to have recited um, his epics or whatever narrative he was dealing with, where they've now given uh, all-night readings of uh, selections from him. Uh, so I think that's rather nice, bringing Homer back to his home aisle. When I, one cannot stress enough the importance of Homer. He was revered by the ancient Greeks and later by the Romans. There was only one other poet, perhaps, that was equally revered, and she was a lyric poet, Sappho. Anyway, it is nice to see people paying attention to the past, because without the past, we would have no words, no literature, no bodies. Thank you. Uh, David, Michael, do you have something to add? Yeah, um, well, I, 
not directly to what uh, we're saying, but I, I wanted to give, include one of at least of the English Romantic poets here. Um, this is an excerpt from John Keats's Lamia, which was published in 1820. And I include it because it's so awful. I mean, <laughs> in a sense, it's wonderful and awful at the same time. I want you to try and he's describing the Lamia here. And the Lamia was a woman, a beautiful woman, who had been and made a god angry for some reason. I, I haven't bothered to read the poem carefully enough to, to, to know exactly what the problem was, but, but the dot has turned her into this serpent creature. And this is the point when Keats is describing her, you know. Uh, and I want you to just try to hold this image in your mind as he, as he piles on the descriptive terms there. She was a Gordian shape of dazzling hue, vermilion-spotted, golden, green, and blue, striped like a zebra, freckled like a pard, eyed like a peacock, and all crimson-barred, and full of silver moons that, as she breathed, dissolved or brighter shone, or interwreathed their lusters with the gloomier tapestries. So, rainbow-sided, touched with miseries, she seemed at once some penanced lady elf, some demon's mistress or the demon's self. Upon her crest, she wore a wannish fire sprinkled with stars like Ariadne's tiar. Her head was serpent, but ah, bittersweet, she had a woman's mouth with all its pearls complete. And for her eyes, what could such eyes do there but weep and weep that they were born so fair as Proserpine still weeps for her Sicilian heir? Uh, top that if you can. Go ahead. Can we move on to, to more modern poems? Yes, I, I think it's about that time. Um, I would just also like to add to something you said uh, earlier, David, that so many of these um, older poems are, are excruciatingly long and um, quite epic. <laughs> uh, but they're really worth reading because they're more stories. Uh, and the descriptors in these wonderful stories are just amazing. Um, it, it certainly isn't something that everyone can get into. But once you start to read them, you really get into it. And it's just amazing. Um, so with that, uh, why don't we go ahead and uh, move on to the more modern um, end of things. I would like to ask each of the uh, panelists to read an excerpt of their own works. Um, and uh, perhaps we'll do a Q&A um, after that. Uh, but we'll, I think we can make probably the rounds at least twice. Yeah. I have a couple of poems by um, Archibald McLish that I wanted to read, if possible. Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, why don't we open with that, then? OK, this is, I just also, we shouldn't forget to mention William Butler Yeats as a, a yes. wonderful poet of imaginative stuff, um, especially his early work was all filled with elves and fairies and all that kind of thing. Or right? Keats, La Belle Dame Sans Merci is yeah, a, a right. really wonderful yeah. one. This little poem is called The End of the World. These are science fiction poems, sort of. Um, uh, 
end of the world. Quite unexpectedly, as Vassero, the armless ambidexterian, was lighting a match between his great and second toe, and Ralph the lion was engaged in biting the neck of Madame Sossman while the drum pointed, and Teeny was about to cough in waltz time, swinging Jocko by the thumb, quite unexpectedly, the top blew off. And there, there overhead, there, there, hung over those thousands of white faces, those dazed eyes, there in the starless dark, the poise, the hover, there with vast wings across the canceled skies, there in the sudden blackness, the black pall of nothing, 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 nothing at all. The, <laughs> the other one is longer. It, this is called Epistle to be Left in the Earth. And it's one of the best science fiction poems I've ever read. It's just a marvelous thing. Now, I have, I have, I'm lucky enough to have a, a recording of him reading the poem, so I know how he means it to be sound, and, and uh, I will attempt to read it pretty much the way he does himself. It is colder now. There are many stars. We are drifting north by the great bear. The leaves are falling. The water is stone in the scooped rocks. To southward, red sun, gray air. The crows are slow on their crooked wings. The jays have left us. Long since we passed the flares of Orion, each man believes in his heart he will die. Many have written last thoughts and letters. None know if our deaths are now or forever. None know if this wandering earth will be found. We lie down and the snow covers our garments. I pray you, you, if any, open this writing. Make in your mouths the words that were our names. I will tell you all we have learned. I will tell you everything. The earth is round. There are springs under the orchards. The loam cuts with a blunt knife. Beware of elms in thunder. The lights in the sky are stars. We think they do not see. We think also the trees do not know, nor the leaves of the grasses hear us. The birds, too, are ignorant. Do not listen. Do not stand at dark in the open windows. We before you have heard this. They are voices. They are not words at all, but the wind rising. Also, none among us has seen God. We have thought often the flaws of sun in the late and driving weather pointed to one tree, but it was not so. As for the nights, I warn you, the nights are dangerous. The wind changes at night and the dreams come. It is very cold. There are strange stars near Arcturus. Voices are calling an unknown name in the sky. Isn't that amazing? Michael? Uh, Michael, maybe you could start us off with um, one of your pieces. Yeah, these are uh, narrative uh, 
I'm hesitating between my spider god and that immortal ghoul. I think uh, we'll start with the spider god. And it's, it's narrative verse, so, uh, so it establishes the, uh, the monstrosity and, and seeks to, to limb some of the, uh, the feeling of the cosmos at the same time. This is called Arakonepos, and it introduces the spider god. This is one of the Nephilim novels. Through a crack, Arak crawled through the sky of his world, out to oceans of space where the great star wheels whirled. He tiptoed across this white pavement of stars and up through the floor of his new world, ours. The first world he'd feasted on, festered and bled, a charnel house heaped with his harvests of dead till his undying hunger was driven to flee by the scourge of a foe more immortal than he. Now lowly he lurks here, a tenant discreet, and sparingly, modestly sups at his meat, sends his spawn out a-hunting and hides neath the soil and devours his sons and possesses their spoils. But once he ran rampant and will never forget the untrammeled slaughter that fevers him yet in dreams when he rears up his gore-crusted jaws and feeds at his will without limits or laws. Now pious he crouches in churches and whispers of riches as vassals may reap from their vespers, and devours them in nibbles, by alms and by tithes, though worlds were once fields that his fangs swept like scythes. As he once in abundance of butchery bathed, when from his greed escaped nothing that breathed, how so pious and sparing he shepherd and shear thee, forget not his lust is to slaughter and tear thee. Nice. I love that ending. <sighs> Thank you. His lust is to slaughter and tear thee. I love that. Uh, Donald, would you grace us with uh, one of your pieces? I would like to take the opportunity. I can always do my stuff almost in my sleep. <laughs> um, Speaking not so distant past, for me, early modern is the Elizabethan period, is the Renaissance, and um, the professor here quoted a famous passage from Locksley Hall about what looks like the future warfare. Uh, the um, book two of The Fairy Queen by Spencer has some rather science fantasy lines Right well I wote, most mighty sovereign, that all this famous antique history, by some the abundance of an idle brain, will judge it be, and painted forgery, rather than matter of just memory. Sith none that breatheth living air does know. Where is that happy land of Feori, which I so much do vaunt, yet nowhere show? but vouch antiquities which nobody can know. But 
Let that man with better sense advise that of the world least part to us is read, in daily household hardy enterprise, many great regions are discovered, which to late age were never mentioned. Whoever heard of the Indian Peru, or who in venturous vessel measured the Amazon's huge river, now found true, or fruitfulest Virginia, who did ever view? Yet all these were when no man did them know, yet have from wisest ages hidden been, and later times things more unknown shall show. Why then should witless man so much misween that nothing is but that which he hath seen? What if within the moon's fair shining sphere, what if in every other star unseen of other worlds he happily should hear? He wonder would much more, yet such to some appear. Thank you. <laughs> uh, David? Uh, I could. <laughs> I'll do a short one. <laughs> I'm just moderating. I'm not, not really. Uh, it's uh, bar flatter poetry written in dark bars and questionable cafes. Um, how about I do find the page that it's on. Um, here we go. Um, this is one I don't normally ever read. Um, it's called The God of Leather and Leaves. The god of leather and leaves keeps children locked in ovens. Gingerbread smells in skies of blue, frosting licked from the tongues of saviors. The god of leather and leaves knows pain in ashes of war, like that German Jewish rain closely wept with a yellow star badge. The god of leather and leaves holds the diaries of vagabond lovers, once rich, gambled poor, then rich again, banished to France, no Venice, death amour. The god of leather and leaves keeps psychiatry alive, heavy-weighted with self-help and dieting frenzies, Oprah clubbing on TV with you and me. The god of leather and leaves is soft and supple, aged and worn, with curled and folded, oft-gilded edges, dusty clouds awakening worms and me alike. The god of leather and leaves keeps worship service day and night, best loved with fingerprints and souls pulled forth out of eyes seeking knowledge. Read on, they chant, read on, read on. I'm gone into the valley of the kings, the valley of God. less fantastical, but more about reading and books. David? Uh, this is from a collection of, called Night Fishing in Great Sky River. Uh, Great Sky River is what the Chinese call the Milky Way. And, uh, this is a poem called In Paradoxical Light. These are science fiction. There is so much light 
And these corchulaca, profuse in the garden cloth, open to it like snowbirds in Miami. Here in the thick sun of August, the blossoms smolder orange and umber and ochre, flicker with yellow and lavender. Here among the great chemical factories of the trees, pumping the air giddy with oxygen. Here I stand, no taller than grass, and the air I breathe spins me dizzy. My heart pulses like a star in the light that is 8.3 minutes old, light from which one can take his direction, as do the faces of these flamboyant flowers, their stems stretching down into shadow. Here, where everything that lives is a clock, a sundial driven by light, here where light always points outward into darkness. Nice. Michael? Uh, this is the ghoul, Mr. Canny Harm. He comes from uh, uh, the lowlands. Uh, there's a Lovecraft story I took him from called The Hound. And uh, so he's come to, to San Francisco um, in the Mission District where I lived for a long time, met my wonderful wife, a place of uh, dark mystery. This is just the first of, of several. <clears throat> in Netherlands did old Van Harm a vasty boneyard till and farm did plow and plant a funeral field where gnarled lich was all his yield and parched cadaver all the crop that ere the ghoul did sow or reap. But it's carnival row, this is the mission district, but it's carnival row in latter years that the canny hound now scythes and shears the boggy graves of his natal fife. He's abandoned for carnival's shadow strife. It's poor town's earth that he seeds now and tills, where the shambling shadow folk drift without wills. I don't mean to malign the mission. It's, it was a little stranger in those days. <laughs> it's strange now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Let me just check time. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes left. So uh, perhaps if each of you has a, a short piece and then we can move on to Q&A, um, that would be wonderful. So Donald, maybe. Uh While he's searching. I, I have it. Oh, you have it, okay. You can't escape from Plato, one way or the other. <laughs> the music of the spheres. Uh, some friends of mine in Sacramento, to whom I dedicated this poem, John and Lola Morgan, turned me on to uh, a book called The Theory of Everything by Stephen Hawking, late in 2002. And as you know, uh, Stephen Hawking is laying waste his powers to reconcile two major theories, uh, quantum me mechanics and the Big Bang, which evidently happened a long, long time ago. And you start <laughs> thinking about 
has the cosmos been through this before? Well, uh, there's no way of finding out. The music of the spheres that vibrates out in space, do black holes quench this music that lured Plato's ear as they draw matter to their mass to leave no trace? And when these particles resume in some new sphere, a planet or a star, is it those that we hear, ghost-alike in our tympanum, tintinabulous? And is it in this way, this roundabout career, in this and other ways, much more than fabulous, that particles go forth from us and then come back to us? Expansion and contraction, dissonance and consonance, begun at once, the cosmos needs no further impetus its particles need but recharge as on and on they dance. This music of the spheres that vibrates out in space is the cosmos in sound, unceasing, huge, beyond huge, one labyrinthine fugue and cunning subterfuge, polyphonies that sing at every kind of pace. Thank you. That's really nice. Uh, David? This is a poem that takes place after everybody on Earth has died, except for certain people, um, the undying. And it, so it's spoken by a vampire. Soliloquy at the Tomb of Earth. Once again, I wake and regard the stars. I do not gaze at them in that unfocused human way. I do not suffer from romantic fancies nor aesthetic reveries, but rather assess the stars as prey. For I wait out these endless days, these nights when only the cold feet of wind trouble the dust because I must, because I am what I am, because I am Hades bobbin, shuttling in and out of life, deathless as that desert fish in Krypton sun-baked clay, which at the first touch of rain suddenly quickens, drinks deep the liquid of life, and swims. But I do not swim, of course, nor willingly cross a stream except by air. I am a thing of earth even more than foolish men who spilled each other's precious blood into the gaping dust. And now I lie in my box of native though unnatural soil and survey the wondering stars. I see no change, no new brightness there. Yet some night when I wake, there will be a light that moves a light that carries life to transfuse old earth and make it swim. And soon those curious souls will come, for against these plains of ash and dust, my casket gleams with gems like falling stars to dazzle the alien eye. And I will rise and kiss the curious face and taste the strange new blood 
rich with ancient terror. Mm. <laughs> <That's> yum, yum. <laughs> <laughs> Michael? Uh, the ghoul continues to court his human victim and indeed at length enlists him. So it is the, the human uh, wooey that is being addressed by this last of the ghoul's uh, exhortations. Through all the human stockyards you have trod, where your bestial brethren broil and bleed, beseeching brute predominance their god to grant them scope to blunder, bray, and breed. Here you have wandered, haunted by a will to weave from words a world more rare and bright, outreaching death, to shed its radiance still when you have sunk to dust and endless night. But I, who lay so long entombed below that abattoir by your brutes tenanted, oh, how their hooves did teach my soul to know the living deaths by which they're tormented. I, who now long have walked among that herd, I am unroofed by time. The eons sprawl like open fields I pillage undeterred. My feet outrace the century's slow crawl. No wordsmith that it is my wish to shower this grandeur, this forever, this deathless power on your rare kind that strive for vaster views. You hard and hungry ones whom the abyss excites to try their wings. You sterner few, I lift up to the plane where I exist. Wow, that's great. <laughs> um, thank you, everyone. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Um, let's go ahead and open it up to uh, Q&A. And uh, gentlemen in the front. Unfortunately, the only thing that comes to mind is rather long. Uh, it would take 30 minutes, and I don't think that is suitable <laughs> for the... Well, there is something, if I may be permitted. Uh, I, I set this to music. Uh, so much of the output of the California romantics seems to, be, seems to deal with death, which, of course, as we know, is just a part of life. <clears throat> we come in at one door, birth, and we go out the other door, which is death. <clears throat> this, this is from a play he wrote called A Bad Night. It's a political play. <laughs> it's more a playlet. And this is the song of the dead body. Down among the sainted dead, many years I lay. Beetles occupied my head, moles explored my clay. <laughs> there we feasted day and night. I and bug and beast, they provided appetite. And yes, I supplied the feast. <laughs> 
Amen. 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 Thank you. That fiesta is a stone. That's the lowest I can sing. I can sing fairly high falsetto, but uh, that's the, I can't sing any more than that. And I just was able to croak it out. Thank you for your indulgence. Um, the lady here. Uh, I, I offer that. I think that the uh, mnemonic use of verse uh, is showing the, the, the shift in literacy and that meters are getting a lot shorter, you know, like hip-hop meters. It's like, you know, trisyllabic lines, but it's still working, you know, and that it's getting close actually to the Anglo-Saxon line, which is what, five accents? I mean, it's, the line is getting shorter and it's still going on and we're still Everybody, and kids in, uh, included, are still making poetry. I think that, that you're right, you know? That's still happening. Um, to speak to that as well, I, I've often heard many, many very famous rappers, um, not to bring it back to Eminem, but uh, say that what was so unique about Eminem's rapping is that he raps in full sentences, um, which was unique at the time, maybe few years ago when a lot of the rappers were saying that and I think I've seen just in the few first last few years a lot of rappers getting into more of that whole sentence rhyming and uh, bringing out their accents in in a very poetic way um, Yeah, I've, I've read two versions of the of the story of Inanna, and I think they're, I think it's wonderful. So, if you don't know, this is this is also Sumerian, and it uh, it includes a lot of information about um, organizing a society and so on that she calls the me, is all of it the, the uh, so the, the gods gave all of this knowledge, and the, and she's recorded there. Was there something specifically you wanted to say? That's another thing that's really worth reading. I, I, that's, I don't know this particular translation, but I can't comment on that one, but there are a couple of them out there, and they're, they're good. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Donald, did you have a point? There was something that we're skirting a problem here that nobody has brought out into the open, 
Much of the poetry being published today in magazines could not have been published at the beginning of the 1900s and vice versa. Even if the work seems relatively modern to us and uses meter, and you might use meter and rhyme, because it embodies attitudes and aspects that um, the intellectuals don't particularly favor, well, it probably wouldn't be uh, published. Walt Whitman invented free verse, so-called, it's not that free, and free form, to reflect a new experience in America. So a lot of people that are still using meter and rhyme, which by the way, most of that grew out of perfectly natural phenomena. The Fortina, for example, eight syllables and six syllables, I believe grew out of a harvest ritual, one line of men facing a line of women. Um, so the, there's nothing really artificial about the meters. Perhaps the systematic application might seem uh, artificial, but I don't know. With human beings, what is artificial and what is natural? Uh, the point I wanted to make is that one of the beauties of imaginative poetry is that it preserves so much that has gone out of the language and literature otherwise. Smith, in, for example, uses something that's now forbidden at the time he wrote. It wasn't yet, which was the use of the true second person singular, the thou, <laughs> and, the, and I love thee, it's not the same as I love you, uh, ye, the, the alternate plural to you, um, and just certain attitudes. I, uh, there's a poem of his called The Orchid, and I just want to cite the first eight lines, and, and this exemplifies perfectly what I mean. Beauty, thou orchid of immortal bloom, Sprung from the fire and dust of perished spheres, how art thou tall in these autumnal years with the red rain of immemorial doom and fragrant where but lesser suns illume for sustenance of life's forgotten tears. Ever thy splendor and thy light appears like dawn from out the midnight of the tomb. You're not going to find anything like, like that published in Poetry Magazine today, unfortunately. I made my point. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.